Here we've got probably around about a third of the top of a very large globular pot. It's made up of something like 70 pieces and it would maybe have an orifice, a mouth diameter of maybe 30 centimetres. What does a conservator do and what's assured? Welcome to Behind the Scenes, where we look at the science and ideas around the exhibition Connections Across the Coral Sea. That's Dr Holly Jones-Amin. She's a senior conservator at Melbourne University's Grimwade Conservation Services. And the pot she's talking about comes from Papua New Guinea. So, how often do archaeologists find a complete vessel? From this part of the world, almost never. And certainly from Caution Bay, there is nothing. The closest we have to a whole vessel um, is probably two-thirds. In Europe, there's something like 55,000 Greek vessels that have been excavated, and some of them are complete and not damaged. With these vessels, even if you could put most of it together, there will always be something missing, always. And that's to do with how it's fragmented and how it's been deposited, how it's been excavated and how it's been reconstructed. Holly's also an associate investigator with CARBA, the ARC Centre of Excellence for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage, through Monash Indigenous Study Centre at Monash University. She's an expert at piecing together sherds, fragments of pottery from the past. I want to find out more about what her job entails. So we're entering the lab and we're in one of the quarantine labs at Monash University. This corner of the room is where I've done the conservation work on pottery that's associated with the Coral Sea exhibition. And you can see here I've got a corner bench with quite a number of pieces of pottery in it. Some of it is single pieces that have been conserved. Other pieces are in the process of being conserved and some of them are completed. What we can see here on this end is the largest sherd which is a pottery fragment, we don't call them shards, we call them sherds, from Caution Bay that I've seen belonging to this era. I'll get out this one. Um, this one is from a site that Professor E. McNiven excavated. So I'm just taking the lid off. What we've got in here is a bowl and it has the dentate decoration around the rim and it's quite a shallow bowl and it's got what's called red slip. So each sherd's been cleaned under a microscope, each sherd has been strengthened with adhesive and then it's been adhered together, taking great care that there's none of the adhesive visible that I've used. And that's because you don't want the researcher or the museum visitor to see anything other than the sherds. You don't want them to see a shiny bit of adhesive that might draw their eye away from the story that the object tells. So it's very important to have those fragments held together in as natural a way as possible so that people can be transported back in time. They can feel the authenticity of that object. And it's also about the archaeologists being able to compare things. So they will compare the diameter of the vessel, the lip, the flare of the lip and the size of the vessel against other ones. And you might find something that's very similar on another site and there might be a relationship between the sites. Also, if you don't adhere it and align the pieces properly, you get a little step between the two. And every single time you get that out, you get the alignment out until the alignment's really out. And if it was a complete vessel, if you didn't have it right, you could end up with a major gap. I think a lot of people, when they think of archaeologists, they think of them in trenches and pulling out a pot or a bone 
and then they see things in the museum and people don't actually realise the huge amount of work, probably the majority of the work which takes place between the digging and the exhibiting of the work. No, there's a really long time. The excavation might be a month or something and then it might be quite a number of years in which everything is sorted, analysed and published with communication with the community. Excavations often take place in areas under threat from development and often aren't the elaborate sites we see in popular programs in archaeology. I have a vessel here from Muapu 1 and it was found sitting, oh, two, three metres underground in a one-by-one square excavation unit, which is quite typical for Australian archaeologists who work in Australia and the Pacific. They don't excavate these large, you know, if you imagine a Greek temple and you imagine the temple or you imagine a number of rooms, they're not excavating that sort of size. They're excavating a smaller size. And that can be to do with surveying, but it also can be to do with making sure you're leaving it to be excavated in the future by another group who have different resources to science and technology in the future. How old is this fragment of a pot that you're holding? This one has a date that ranges between 2,802 to 2,605 Cal BP. So it's been calculated at that age. It was excavated when there was bulldozers waiting to destroy the site because this was part of a industrial development that was happening in Papua New Guinea. And when it was excavated, it was found in around about 18 pieces. And when I got it, those 18 pieces had fragmented into more than 50-odd pieces and that's what we can see here that's joined. Connections Across the Coral Sea explores the trade in goods and ideas between the peoples of Papua New Guinea, the Torres Strait Islands and mainland Australia. So there's almost certainly a connection between the pottery makers in PNG and the people who made vessels recently found in Queensland at Jigaroo or Lizard Island. Here's Ian McNiven. He's Carba Chief Investigator and Professor at Monash University's Indigenous Studies Centre. The pottery we've got on Lizard Island, we know that it was made sometime between two to 3,000 years ago. So it's, it's a pulse of pottery activity. So, of course, the question that that raises is, how did the, the people on Lizard Island two to 3,000 years ago, where did they get the idea of pottery making? And we believe that it reflects some sort of connections with the uh, existing pottery making communities in Papua New Guinea. So yes, there is a connection. Is it a trade connection? That's a very good question. So we've had an analyses done of the clays and the minerals in the clay to see whether it's locally made pottery or is the pottery made from exotic minerals that have come in, say, from Papua New Guinea. The analysis shows that the pottery is made locally. So it's local clays. What kind of pottery is it? We have little tiny pieces of pottery. So the biggest piece is probably the size of my thumbnail. So what did the vessels look like? That's a very good question. Ultimately, we don't know. We just have these little fragments. What we do know is that some of the fragments are quite thick, nearly a centimetre thick, and some of them are like five millimetres thick. So we have a range of different types of vessels. So it's not just one vessel that broke up. There's many different types of vessels. So of different thicknesses and different sizes. They probably were globular pots, but after that, it's speculation. The first stop for these little sherds was Holly's lab. I've worked on a tiny bit of that material. Um, I've needed to uh, desalinate it, so Professor Ian McLiven came to me, and I was desalinating it to reduce the salt content in them so they survive. If you leave the salts in them, they'll crumble. It's really exciting that the material's been found so close to the Torres Strait and does further 
that belief that there was trade and things going on between the Torres Strait and northern parts of Queensland and this area of Papua New Guinea. Tell us about the culture of the people from this area of Papua New Guinea who made these pots. Mm. Okay, so this group is late Lapita, or in the style of late Lapita. The archaeologists that are studying it, they're still analysing this and coming up with understanding them. But the Lapita people, or the group of people, were the colonisers of the Pacific. And they took a material culture with them, which is very highly recognisable. And as soon as you find it, you know you found Lapita, because it has this particular dentate stamp decoration. And there's some I can show you just behind you. What I'm holding is a, a fairly small pottery fragment. Again, I said it was before, it's, it's assured. It's probably four centimetres by three centimetres with a notched lip and this dentate decoration. And what it has is two upper parallel lines and it's called comb dentating because it's literally been made with something that resembles a comb, but not for the hair, but for pottery. So, Holly, what makes a good conservator? We are very observant and you need to be observant to be a conservator and only get stronger and stronger over time. And you're really good at jigsaw puzzles, aren't you? I have been asked that before. I'm pretty good at them. <laughs> but I think I might be better at pottery puzzles, actually. <laughs> Thanks to Dr Holly Jones, our Min, and Professor Ian McNiven, who took part in this podcast. I'm Fiona Gruber, a journalist with CARBA. And if you'd like to find out more, do listen in to the other podcasts in this series. 